Hi, this is Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of MPO Magazine, and I'm here with Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences, for another episode of Mike on MedTech. For this episode, we, uh, we're looking again, like we did last episode, at my most recent editor's letter, which ran in the April uh, 2018 edition of MPO Magazine. Uh, it can also be found online, and we'll provide the link below uh, in the uh, in the description section. But anyway, it was about the, the regulatory uh, transitions that are happening, you know, virtually worldwide with different aspects of the regulatory uh, process and, and issues and approvals. Um, and, you know, most notably, uh, the M- there's major changes coming to the MDR. So I had reached out to several people uh, within the industry to get their comments and kind of get some of their feedback on these changes and some of the uh, some of the actions that would be caused. Um, you know, uh, you know, product launch shifts or uh, you know the specific questions about the MDR, etc. So. Today, I decided to speak with Mike about those same things and, and have him share his uh, comments and opinions on those. So, Mike, before we start, just a, a welcome to you, and, and thanks, as always, for participating. Well, thank you, Sean, for the opportunity to talk with you and your audience about a, a very timely and also a very important subject. So, let's let's get started uh, initially by at least going over some of the more significant changes that are occurring to the MDR. I mean, everyone's heard that, you know, Europe is changing the regulatory approval process. I don't know, you know, intimately how familiar everyone is. So if you could just share a few of the major or more significant changes that are happening. Happy to, Sean. Uh, And actually, before we do, let's take an even uh, a half a step back from that because what I don't hear many people talking about are why these changes are going into effect. You know, the regulatory world, whether we're talking about the EU or the U.S. or anywhere, it's a very fluid, it's a very constantly changing dynamic environment. To use the regulatory metaphor from the design controls, let your uh, outputs become your inputs, right? So it's the concept of feedback. The simple reality is, In the EU, we have had problems with medical devices that, quite frankly, should have never happened. You know, things like breast implants, things like uh, hip replacements, things like vaginal meshes. You know, regrettably, there are a number of problems that have uh, uh, impacted people's lives, caused harm, and in some cases even caused deaths. And those things have happened here in the United States as well. So we should not be averse to change as long as the change is going in the right direction. Um, and obviously the goal of any regulatory uh, framework is to try to learn from our past mistakes and to try to prevent them from happening again. So I would argue that change in and of itself is not a, a, a bad thing. It's not something that we should be afraid of as long as the chain makes sense. Okay, so now let's come back to your original question in terms of the, the changes in specifically in the EU and the new MDRs that are transitioning into effect even as we speak. <clears throat> this is, for those of, in the audience that are not familiar, a major rewrite of the uh, medical device regulatory system in the EU. What I've said to people is um, essentially throw away everything that you knew or thought you knew about bringing a medical device onto the market in the EU and start over again because that, in fact, is, is really what's happened, and it hasn't happened to that degree in the EU for many decades. So uh, I think it, in, in that sense it's a good thing. Many of the changes that people are talking about 
quite frankly, to me anyway, Sean, are really not that important. They're more administrative changes. They're, they're different kinds of paperwork, different kind of processes. But the two things that, in my opinion, are the most substantive changes, um, uh, and in fact, these two changes illustrate how the EU is actually diverging from the U.S. system, is in the area of substantial equivalence and in the second area of clinical burden. So when it comes to substantial equivalence, and I know we don't in the EU have a concept of the 510K and the substantial equivalence directly, but indirectly we really do. In the EU, the, uh, the new regulation is really pushing companies towards doing what I call a direct uh, apples-to-apples apples or head-to-head -head comparison of our device compared to uh, a similar device. We don't use the phrase predicate device in the EU, but the idea is essentially the same. They want you to do a head-to-head -head comparison. In other words, they want you to test your device and test the other device and compare the, the results uh, one for one. Whereas in the United States, a couple of months ago, Scott Gottlieb, uh, the commissioner of FDA, announced the, this, this new, what they called the alternative 510K. It's really not an alternative. All it is is the abbreviated 510K, which is one of the forms of the 510K that's been around for a very long time. Uh, it's very uncommonly used in the past. Only about 4 to 5% of 510Ks in the U.S. are brought to market under that abbreviated 510K category. It allows for what I call a paper substantial equivalence comparison. In other words, you, not, you do not need to do that head-to-head. -head. You know, you test our device and you test the other device. You can simply do it on paper via information that you find in the literature or comparing it to an industry standard or a guidance or something like that. So the, the, the one big difference where the two systems are actually diverging, not converging, is in this area of substantial, uh, substantial equivalence or comparisons. The second is, as I mentioned, clinical burden. In the EU, across the board, the clinical uh, 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 requirements, the clinical data, both pre-market as well as post-market in terms of post-market surveillance, are, for the most part, increasing for medical devices across the board. In other words, in the EU, for many, many different medical devices, more clinical data is going to be expected uh, as part of the original submission and more uh, monitoring in, in the form of what we call post-market surveillance or a post-approval study here in the U.S. Uh, is being expected, whereas here in the United States, the opposite is occurring. As a general rule, there are exceptions, of course, but as a general rule, the clinical burden for a lot of devices, certainly not all, is actually being decreased. So to, 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 to recap, Sean, there's a lot of changes, but in my opinion, the, the two most important and most substantive, both in terms of um, workload for companies as well as safety and efficacy of the product, are the two that I just mentioned. Okay, and actually just to, well, fr first I want to do a quick shameless plug, uh, as some listeners may have missed it, but we did a podcast on that alternative 510K uh, uh, policy that, that you just mentioned. Uh, that was a few episodes ago, so if anybody would like to, uh, to listen to that as well separately, I'll, I'll include that link below as well. Uh, but 
just following up to one of the one of the comments you just made, the the comparison to uh, the the other device uh, or another device on the market. What how does how does a company gain access to that information? I mean, are they are they literally buying that device and, and comparing it, or is it you know you you'd mentioned paperwork? You know, what exactly is this comparison that's being made? Well, that's a great question, Sean, because one of the criticisms, one of the pushbacks that I see from a lot of people in the EU about the, uh, uh, this new, um, I don't want to say requirement, but this new emphasis of doing that head-to-head comparison is exactly what you just said. How do we get this information? Well, I often respond to them by, you know, to quote a famous politician from here in the U.S., I feel your pain. But quite frankly, that's not the EU's problem. That's not here in the U.S. the FDA's problem. Let me use the the FDA as a perfect example. The regulation here in the United States since 1976 says for the 510K that we need to show that our device is substantially equivalent to a predicate device. The regulation does not tell us how. And in my opinion, the regulation should not tell us how. That should be up to us. In many cases, the easiest way to do it is to do this head-to-head comparison where we get a hold of the other device and we do the same test to both devices and we compare the numbers, you know, um, uh, apples to apples, so to speak. But that's not always possible. Not long ago, I was involved in bringing an in vitro diagnostic onto the market uh, under the 510K. Our predicate was no longer available because the company was, had gone out of business. There was still an active 510K for it, so technically we could use it as a predicate, but we could not get a hold of that device even if we wanted to. So we had to be a little more imaginative. We had to be a little bit more creative. This is a topic of a completely different discussion, Sean, but um, there are lots of different ways that you can show substantial equivalence. So in my opinion, it's sort of a weak excuse to push back on the EU and say, oh, you know, we don't have access to the competitor's technical file, you know, we can't find this information. With all due respect, that's our problem, and we need to figure out how to solve that. Right, so it sounds like they may be looking at some of those strategies that have been used for the, for the U.S. for that 510K uh, and, and getting, you know, uh, clearance that way. Absolutely correct, and this is something that I spend a lot of my professional time on because as you and many in your audience know, Sean, my background is in biomedical engineering. That's what my PhD is in. So I have absolutely no problem pulling in the engineering and the biology in order to support the the regulatory objective if in this particular case the regulatory objective is to show that uh, that comparison. All right. So, um, so you know, continuing on with, with this, with this MDR changes, uh, you know, as you're, you know, well aware and, and probably many listeners are as well, you know, Europe has always been viewed as a, a first-to-market opportunity for, you know, devices, uh, and then the FDA or U.S. has been, you know, second uh, or, or at least, you know, after that. Uh, is, you know, with these MDR changes, is that, you know, practice going to continue? You know, that's a terrific question, Sean. Um, You're exactly right. In the past, the conventional wisdom, once again, this is a a generalization, there are exceptions, but the conventional wisdom is to bring your device onto the market in the EU first, 
and then to bring it onto the market in the U.S. And by the way, that's not u unique to devices. We often use exactly the same strategy for drugs as well. Uh, the question is, will that continue? Well, maybe not. Because of the increasing uh, requirements uh, across the board in the EU, that might be reversing. Um, but here's the question that I would ask to you and to your audience. Should our goal here really be first to market? In other words, you know, how much of this is just simply politics? How much of this is just simply waving the flag and saying, we want to bring products onto the market in our particular country first? On one hand, there's nothing wrong with that. I understand, you know, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, we shouldn't be patriotic or something like that. But coming from a medical background myself, Sean, and as you know, I used to teach medical school back in the day, I'd like to share with you and your audience an adage <clears throat> something that we teach in medical school, you'll never see it written down in a book, I don't think, but we all know it, and that is, this is, this is with regard to drugs, but the same applies to devices. When uh, prescribing a new drug, wait one year before prescribing a new drug, and if it's for a family member, wait five years. And it sounds kind of like a scary thing, but it's, it, it simply illustrates that a lot of people, sometimes even physicians included, will assume that once either the EU or the US or whoever approves a product that everything that we know about the sorry everything that we would like to know about that product is already known and simply put that's not the case and this is another reason why i think increasing the post market surveillance requirements uh is a good thing because um it's not sufficient to just simply get your product onto the market i mean after all how many products have gotten onto the market in the past that have then gone on to, uh, to, to, to cause harm to people and in some cases even worse. You know, so no system is perfect. Um, and we have to recognize that no system is perfect. That's fine. But we also have to have a discussion as to how to continue to improve it. Absolutely. And, and continuous improvement, I think, is uh, uh, one, of the, one of the objectives you, you know, these companies should be striving for. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, uh, you know, the one-year, five-year uh, waiting period, uh, because I've heard the same sort of thing, you know, separately uh, outside of medical with, uh, you know, software updates. Everybody says Windows, you know, never update your Windows uh, program until, you know, the first, the first patch. And with a car, you never want to buy the car the first year uh, of, a, of a new model. Um, so it's kind of the same idea. You would hope that with drugs and medical devices, there'd be a little more uh, quality assurance in those first models or, or, or first, you know, time releases. But, you know, the reality is, like you said, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with something new in, in some cases, and it, it may not be the perfect product first out of the gate. Well, once again, Sean, I think you're, you're exactly correct. And if I were to take this, a, a, you know, a, a just a tiny bit further, um, I find it fascinating how so many people, you know, companies will, will be very proud to announce, you know, their, their device just got a, a 510K clearance or PMA approval. They just got uh, CE marked in the EU. They just got ISO blah, blah, blah certified. But, you know, when you think about it, Sean, when a company gets any of those things, that's the academic equivalent of being a C student. In other words, that just means that you're passing. That doesn't mean that you're making a good product. That doesn't mean that you're making a safer, effective product. It just simply means that, it's, that you're passing. And, you know, this gets back to 
what we talked about at the beginning, how regulation is supposed to be a very dynamic, very fluid environment because regrettably, how many products have gotten onto the market in the past that met the regulatory requirements and then went on to harm people and as a result, we changed or we increased the regulatory requirements. So these are not things that we should be fearful of. On the contrary, these are things that we should embrace. These are things that we should all talk about in order to uh, ultimately make the world a better place. Absolutely. So, uh, so you know, looking back at, at the, uh, the editor's letter from the April issue, um, you know, there were, there were some comments in there made by, as I said, uh, many uh, industry uh, leaders or, or you know, uh, advocates. Uh, you know, one of the comments, and, and I've heard this elsewhere as well, is that, you know, the FDA uh, regulatory process is the best in the world. It's the gold standard. Uh, you know, if, if, you know, and I know you said a lot of this, you know, some, or I shouldn't say a lot. Some of this is politics with the, you know, EU first, U.S. first. But if, if FDA truly is the gold standard and the previous history has been that companies are going to Europe first, you know, does that, does that translate to the FDA being the gold standard? Is there, you know, room for improvement? I mean, what's, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this, you know, that, com- that type of comment? Well, first of all, Sean, kudos to you and to your publication for creating a forum like this where different people can share different points of view. I think that's very, very important. You know, call me naive, and certainly many people do, but I think the solution to most problems is more communication, not less. So I welcome all the comments from all of the different people that, uh, that are in your column, and I'm happy to, to use this forum to, to provide some, uh, some feedback on them. In terms of the U.S. system being the gold standard, I do have a little bit of a concern about that because, I, you know, again, I'm not – uh, obviously, I'm just as patriotic about, as, as anybody else. But on the other hand, I think that's, quite frankly, a very politicized statement because no system is perfect. I mean, after all, just a few years ago, the Institute of Medicine came out with their uh, recommendation to FDA that we should throw the entire 510K program uh, into the trash. For the record, I was strongly against that recommendation for reasons I won't get into here. But the point is that no system is perfect. All systems can be improved. There are some aspects of the U.S. system that I think are particularly good. There are some aspects of the EU system that are particularly good. I also work with other regulatory agencies in the world, Canada, Singapore, others. I think all of them have, have, have good things. And what I think that we should be doing, quite frankly, is taking sort of a holistic approach, looking at all the different systems and kind of, uh, uh, you know, combining them. Um, I think that's what we should be doing. And as you know, Sean, I'm a big fan of uh, sense, doing what makes sense from an engineering and a biology perspective, not necessarily from a regulatory perspective, because every week and in some cases every day as a uh, regulatory strategy consultant, I read regulation that as a professional biomedical engineer makes absolutely no sense to me. And yet people follow it anyway. And I think this is a problem. So I think we have to take a more logical, a more intelligent approach to uh, figuring out what to do. I hope, I hope uh, you understand what I mean by that. 
Yeah, no, I think so. And I, and I do have a follow-up question that, that kind of ties into what you've already touched on. So I, I, I suspect I have an idea of what the answer may be. But my question before we close out for this episode would be looking at MDR, looking at what the EU is doing with their uh, F, or I'm sorry, their regulatory approval process. Does the FDA need a similar overhaul? Uh, or, or is the system at a point where you know, minor but smart revisions would be better served for, for our system? You know, Sean, that's a very interesting question. Um, and it reminds me, you know, a long time ago, 30-plus 30, 30 years ago when I was an undergrad, um, uh, I took a few pro- programming classes. And one of the most important lessons that I learned is you can continue to debug a program and apply patch after patch after patch, But sooner or later, you come to the realization that, gee, maybe it's easier just to throw the whole darn thing away and to start all over again. That's the lesson of futility. I'm not suggesting that we're at that point in our regulatory environment that we should just throw the whole thing away and start over again. But I think there's something to be said for at least considering that. You know, I'll I'll leave you with this thought. I happen to uh, be sitting on an airplane once next to, uh, I won't mention... The, the person or the country that she was from. But she was from uh, a, a very high level uh, in her particular country's government, um, having to regulate not medical products but consumer products. And she and I got into an interesting uh, discussion of regulatory philosophy, and she said something to me that stuck with me that I thought was very fr- profound. She said she would like to throw away their entire, her country's entire regulatory framework, the equivalent of what we in the United States call the Code of Federal Regulations, throw away the entire CFR and replace it with one line, thou shalt not create products that harm people. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, Sean, is there anything more that we need than that? Now, perhaps that's you know, overly naive, I don't know, uh, but uh, something to think about. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And uh, with that, I will allow the listeners the time to think about that and, uh, you know, have any, uh, share any comments on what's been discussed or share uh, ideas for future discussions and future podcasts with us uh, by email, which is included below as well. Uh, Unfortunately, though, that's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, If you would like to make a suggestion, as I said, just email us uh, at the email below. And until then, until next time, uh, this has been Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of MPO, and Mike Drews, uh, President of Vascular Sciences, with another episode of Mike on MedTech. Thanks for listening.